time for another edition of the Gem on the Queen's Crown with your host, Lee W. Mowen. Welcome again, dear listener, to the Gem on the Queen's Crown, a podcast talking only Dayton and Cincinnati, Ohio sports. It's our second episode by ours, I mean mine, I'm the one doing this. And this episode, I hope you really enjoy. It is titled, as you can clearly tell, on iTunes, Google Play, and also the host of the Gem of the Queen's Crown, GemCitySports.com, on the Gem City Sports Network, Mowen's Sports Almanac. So the basis of this episode, I'll tell you the source in a minute, if you never seen or you don't remember, Back to the Future 2, where Marty and the Doc go to 2015, you know, the future, where the Cubs win the World Series. <laughs> they don't, not till next year anyway. But they go in time, they go forward in time to the future, and they pick up Gray Sports Almanac. Now, of course, the difference is with Gray Sports Almanac, Marty's plan was to get rich going back and betting on these sporting events. Whereas this episode, I hope you wouldn't make a time machine and go back and bet on this. That's not what the whole point is. Actually, the source, I believe, stems from a Twitter user, Dunlap Sports. And this is from July 19th of this year, 2017. This tweet got 151 retweets, 436 likes, and over 2,000 replies. According to the screen I have showing in front of me, which is showing Twitter, the tweet says, You can change the outcome of one sporting event during your lifetime. Which one would you choose and why? So, there's a local twist on this. It made it into Dayton Daily News, well, at least DaytonDailyNews.com, by writer Marcus Hartman. And there were four events picked from readers of the DDN, the first one being the Game 7 loss of the 1972 World Series to the Oakland Athletics. And the second one being Super Bowl XXIII, which is 23 in Roman numerals. One of two Super Bowl losses to San Francisco in the 80s for the 81 and 88 season. Event 3, a couple of big Flyers losses. The top one was the 1967 Tournament loss to the mighty, mighty UCLA Bruins in the John Wooden era. And the other two picked the 1990 loss in the tournament to Arkansas and 1984's loss to Georgetown. And the fourth one, uh, State Michigan. Okay. So, me being my original self, I thought, okay, let's take this a spin for the podcast. Let's make this an episode. So I ask... In the Cincinnati-Dayton area, if there's one sporting event you can change for the better, what one would it be and why? One of the suggestions is a little bit different from this, but we'll touch on it. I have to thank everyone that brought up something to talk about, and I will give you credit as the podcast rolls along. I, myself, have thought of a couple things to talk about. And some of the suggestions from my friends on Facebook and Twitter. 
mentioned about the same thing. So I will add the credit along to my ideas as well. So the very first thing I thought of, again, going back through my lifetime, which is 1988 and forward, which actually, I'll be honest, I broke a couple of those rules already, but let's begin. So what is the first thing I would change? Well, this one you don't have to flip your calendars back that far or get enough plutonium to power up the flux capacitor in the good old DeLorean time machine. Go back to the 2013 Federal Hockey League Finals. This is the very first year of the Dayton Demons, originally supposed to be called the Dayton Devils. And this is taking the place of the Dayton Gems 2.0, which played in the International Hockey League 2.0 and the Central Hockey League, and eventually the CHL became absorbed into the ECHL, creating one big double-A hockey family, which spreads from coast to coast, which originally the conference was called the East Coast Hockey League, but that's not relevant. So... The Dayton Demons in the 2012-2013 season led under the guidance of Mark Lefebvre, who, by the way, is now an assistant coach with the ECHL Cincinnati Cyclones, marking his first return to the States in hockey-wise since he was the head coach of these Demons. Dayton went 42 wins, 6 losses, 2 overtime losses, and 1 shootout loss. For a grand total of 123 points in the FHL, every win was worth 3 points. Overtime wins are worth 2. And the OT losses are worth 1. And of course, regular losses, just like anything else, nothing. 51 games in for the Demons. They scored 320 goals. And that's 100 more than the second highest amount scored, which was by 4th place Danville and the Dashers with 220. Danbury, who ended up winning the Cup with 218, and Thousand Islands, the third seed in the playoffs, the Privateers scored 188. And that was an interesting year as well, because that was the third year of the FHL. You had a team playing outside, and remember this is hockey, so having a hockey rink outdoors throughout the whole thing sounds easy, right? Nope. And there's, it's a really funny story. Look up Bowman Field, no, I think it was Airman pond at Bowman Field, something like that. So Dayton, like I mentioned, a very impressive record, just nine losses in any sort throughout the 51 games, 123 points, which easily won them the regular season. And then the playoffs begin. After all the muss and fuss of losing a couple teams throughout the 2012-13 season, Dayton and Danbury end up sweeping their semifinal opponents three games to none in a best of three. Dayton won all three games against the Danville Dashers, and Danbury, the Whalers, won all three games against the Thousand Islands Privateers. Then the finals happened. Game one ended up going to Danbury, a very close 5-4 to four win for the Whalers. And then game two, I remember this was my first or second solo broadcast and Danbury won that game 7-2. to And then the series went over to Connecticut because Dayton, being the regular season winner, had playoff advantage throughout the whole thing. They dropped that game 6-3 to in Connecticut, and the Whalers took down the Demons. Now, 
I told you about how the playoffs went, how the regular season went. It was all swimmingly for the Dayton Demons. A very veteran lace squad. Very good team, too. Very fan-friendly as well, as all the single-A Dayton teams were when I was the play-by-play voice. So, what would happen if the Dayton Demons won that year? Let me just put a couple more tidbits into your ears. In the offseason, Coach Lefebvre went to the EIHL in England, which is the Elite Ice Hockey League. He went to coach a couple teams over there. And at the time, Demons forward Trevor Karazowicz, who smashed the all-time assist record in a season, well over 100 Started off the season with the Williamsport Outlaws, previous year part of the New Jersey Outlaws, which won the Cup for the 2012 playoffs. Then Williamsport kind of folded. After the last home game, poof. So teams got a chance to pick out the Outlaws talent, and Dayton's first pick, Trevor Karazowicz. And during the offseason, after the Cup loss... Karazowicz was named head coach, and he would take a very young squad with all four of the draft picks in the college-slash-junior hockey draft. He would win the cup, comeback-style, three games to two against the Danbury Whalers. Games three and four of that cup, amazing. As Dayton won in overtime three to two, Dayton would win the next game three to one. And then game five, I don't know if anyone saw this. 9-2 Dayton. They won the cup after being swept in the last FHL Cup. Coming back down two games to none when all the fans were just riding it off. Bam. First trophy in Dayton since the 75-76 Dayton Gems 1.0, which won the Turner Cup. It was an amazing year after that. And you know what? I still wear my championship ring to every sporting event I go. That is one of my favorite sporting things, actually. Very near and dear to my heart. But if Dayton won the first cup, would 2013-2014 happen? Who knows? Would the Dayton Demons still be in Dayton after the third season? Again, I don't know. I don't have the flux capacitor. You have the flux capacitor, you listening to my podcast. So that's the first thing I thought of. What if Dayton won the 2013 FHL Finals against the Danbury Connecticut Whalers. So event two, it keeps on the hockey trail. What if Dayton had a downtown rink? So this requires a little bit of a history lesson. And if my podcast microphone is strong enough to pick it up, you might have heard the sliding of a book and me kicking my laptop because I felt like it needed it. This is the Hockey and Dayton book written by Chuck Gabringer. Hopefully a future guest to my podcast. Really good book if you like hockey and if you like Dayton, Ohio. It combines the two, you see, and talks about Dayton hockey. See how that works? It's only the second episode. Why am I being such a jerk on the podcast? I don't know. I was hoping you'd laugh at that. So we go to the last chapter in Hockey in Dayton, which, by the way, it is published by Arcadia Publishing. In October 1971, 
The World Hockey Association, or the WHA, founded as a competitor to the NHL. Dayton, along with nine other cities, which include Chicago, Los Angeles, and Miami, was given a charter franchise to start play in fall of 72, and it was led by architect Paul Deneau. And the league was guessing about 8,500 fans per game. That would break even. There's no local facility to accommodate that number, because Hare Arena, when I was broadcasting with the Demons and Demolition, could only hold up to 5,500. I believe that was the official number. Danu proposed the construction of a 14,000-seat downtown arena across from, back then, the new Dayton Convention Center. Remember, this would be 71-72. With the Gems still playing out of Hera, many felt the area can't support two teams, and that the Gems would have to be bought out by the WHA team, which would be named the Dayton Arrows. Arrows as in A-E-R-O-S. And the logo for the Houston Arrows, which, spoiler, turned out to be the Dayton Arrows, was a plane. It's based on the history of flight and the Wright brothers in Dayton, Ohio. So, late December 91, the city of Dayton agreed to fund the new arena and was considering putting temporary ice and 6,000 seats in the convention center. So, the WHA have place to play while the arena was going up. The Dayton Arrows presented the Gems stockholders, you know, the current team at the time, this is before the two Turner Cups were won by the Gems, a buyout offer, which then was rejected by the Gems. The Gems decided to stay put, and sentiment towards the Arrows plan began to change quickly, and then Dayton pulled their plans for the support and the convention center plans. In March 1972... Danu moved the team to Houston, which became the Houston Arrows, and nowadays is known as the Iowa Wild in Des Moines, Iowa. So, a little bit about that. Houston played in the American Hockey League, which is, in baseball terms, AAA to the NHL. And, at least with the Blue Jackets, most of the time you'll see AAA talent, now from Cleveland, will go to Columbus and though happened from time to time, Dayton almost had that type of team. And Dayton almost had a downtown rink for hockey. Now, my question is, if that rink were to be built, what would happen to the landscape of Dayton, Ohio hockey? Would Dayton still have pro hockey now? Keep in mind, we're coming up on the second season without a pro hockey team in the area from single A on up, would Dayton have the Dayton Bombers at all? And a little history on that. ECHL team, that is the double A level, again going by baseball terms. And the Bombers started off at Hare Arena in the 91 season, then moved to Wright State University's Nutter Center in 96, stayed there until 2009, and before... The membership of the ECHL was handed back to the offices for the Bombers. There were talks about, hey, let's go ahead and build that downtown rink. And, of course, it didn't happen because there is no downtown hockey rink. So, what if that happened? What if the downtown rink was built? Would the Dayton Arrows still be there? 
what would hockey look like? Will we have any of the teams that we've seen over the past few years? And this is the first of probably many events that I picked that, no, this wasn't in my lifetime, but it affected my lifetime as someone that got into hockey fairly late in the timeline. After all, I mean, if there was still a team in Dayton for the Arrows, would there be a Bombers team? What would happen to Hera? What would, would Wright State ever get the ice installed at another center? Also, this was brought up by several people on my Facebook timeline. And by several, I mean about a fourth of the suggestions on Facebook are about a new hockey rink. Start off with John Blosser mentioning that Dayton get a new arena for a double-A or higher team. And with the downtown rink being a thing, perhaps that could have happened. Kent Metcalf agrees 100%, and the gentleman you might know as B-Man, the... Hockey public address announcer extraordinaire, and also one of the radio hosts on WTUE 104.7 FM in the area. Yep, so he agrees with the hockey rink as well. Sean Murphy, a comment down saying, we need a new hockey arena, meaning one large enough to host another pro team. And that is not the only hockey topic that was brought up on here. I guess I'll go ahead and jump on that. The first one, not talking about Dayton hockey. This is talking about Miami University hockey. Of course, Miami being in Oxford, Ohio, which is in between Dayton and Cincinnati. So yes, it is part of the gym on the Queen's crown. I guess it'd be kind of like the glue that holds the gem to the crown, what have you. You know, something in between gem and a crown. I'm sure you can think of something better than I just said. Jeremy Lance, who was a co-worker with me at the Dayton Dynamo last season. Terrific gentleman. Miami Hockey holding on to win the NCAA championship back in 2009. Instead of losing a 3-1 to lead. Where does that sound familiar nowadays? Hint, Cavs beating the... Warriors last year for the NBA Finals. 3-1 to one lead in the final minute, then falling in OT. If the Red Hawks won that game, well, that'd be pretty sweet, number one, but that's also another championship to the Sinday area. Now, if you don't know Miami hockey, it's good. And the rink, whoo. I love that rink. I mean... Selfishly, I wish we could take Miami's rink and move it to Dayton so we have hockey. But what it is, it is a two-sheeter rink with the second sheet being less seats. It can hold, you know, intramural events at Miami University. And also high schools play there. By high schools, I mean Oxford, Talawanda, the Braves. They have their hockey team play there sometimes. I've heard sometimes they'll play at the main rink if Miami doesn't have a game. I'll let you in on a little secret. I was kind of hoping to see the main rink and the press box of Miami University's rink. But it turned out there was the club hockey team hosting Lindenwood. I think the Red Hawks won that night. I don't remember, though. But Centerville ended up beating Talawanda 5 to nothing that night, which started around 
nine o'clock. But yeah, high school hockey. Prepare for a lot of talk of that of the upcoming months of the gem of the Queen's Crown. Because guess what? I broadcast a lot of it. Anyway, Jeremy Lance's comment about if Miami hockey ended up winning in 2009. Of course, there's the cup. It's also sweet. It's a tough loss, though, for the Red Hawks. Already mentioned needing a new hockey rink. On the comments, I'm going from top to bottom as they were brought in on Facebook. So, we'll go ahead and go to my third event, which is keep it in touch with downtown Dayton. This is, what if the Dayton Dragons didn't build in downtown Dayton? What if they build in the suburbs? Now, you might know, in the past few years, Dayton sports can range from being downtown Dayton, but mostly in the suburbs. Let's take the Dayton Dutch Lions. They have played... I believe I mentioned this in the first episode they played in Bellbrook, Springboro, Beaver Creek. I feel like I'm missing a place. They now play at Dock Stadium in West Carrollton, Ohio, which is close to downtown Dayton. The Dayton Dynamo, the 2.0 squad, there is a 1.0, and I'll touch on it briefly, formerly the Cincinnati Saints of the NPSL, start off at Welcome Stadium. For year number one in Dayton, Ohio, which is, again, close to downtown Dayton. It's like the last or second last exit. You're heading northbound towards downtown on 75. They were playing at Welcome Stadium to wait for the completion of Chaminade Julien's Roger Glass Stadium, which it looks like you can literally touch the downtown skyline from the press box window. Of course, you can't do that because that would be one heck of a reach. So what if the Dragons didn't build downtown? What if they built in the suburbs? Would they still have the sellout streak that they currently enjoy, which is currently tops in all major minor league sports for most consecutive sellouts, which is nothing short of amazing. What would happen to baseball then? Would Dayton still have it if they built in the suburbs? Would Cincinnati still want to be partnered up with Dayton and have that major minor league relationship they now enjoy? Which... Once upon a time, Marge shot frowned upon so unfavorably you'd think Dayton would never get a touch of baseball ever again. So what would happen if Dayton did not build downtown? The answer, you wouldn't have Delco Lost behind you, which if you get one of those new apartments out overlooking the stadium, you can just watch the baseball game for free. So that is pretty cool. And also that area has been built up quite nicely with Tech Town, there's new apartments on where we used to park as a worker of the Dane Dragons. There's new apartments there. There's new apartments going up on Sears close to the park. So yeah, what happens if Dayton doesn't build downtown? That's my third event. And my fourth event is the first true one touching on Cincinnati sports. This, of course, being the Cincinnati Gardens recently it's been a year since the gardens were bought up by Port Authority and closed, shuttered, never to be used for sports again. That knocked a couple high school teams out. Luckily, they did all find a place. I think all of them, most of them, called Northland Ice Center Home, which isn't too far away from the gardens. I say most of them because there's also Sports Plus on US 42, which isn't too far from Northland. In fact, both of them kind of 
lie on the same road as it would be. They're not too far apart either. But that's not important. Also, a junior hockey team lost their home. They played at South Metro Sports. I got the opportunity to call some of those games, the Cincinnati Thunder, and this year. It's not too long before they start their season in September. I'm looking at my calendar. It is the last full week of July. So yeah, hockey's starting again. How amazing is that? So what if the Cincinnati Gardens were still open? And I have an event 4.5, or actually 4.2. What would happen to the Cincinnati Commandos? Now these two don't really have a lot, you know, in common. The Commandos didn't cause the Cincinnati Gardens to close down. That's ridiculous. And gardens have been around for around 65, 66 years before being shuttered. So if the gardens never close, you still have the sheet of ice, you still have all that history, the Mohawks playing there, the Stingers. You have a lot of great hockey history there. And don't forget the AHL Cincinnati Mighty Ducks. Again, from the first episode, I never saw them in person, but when we were in Cincinnati, we always hear the radio ads, and when I saw the logo, I was like, oh, cool, it reminds me of the Mighty Ducks cartoon. Because, keep in mind, back then I wasn't a sports fan. So, we'll jump to Event 5 to talk on the Cincinnati Commandos, if you don't know who they were, a very successful indoor football team. Won two championships in the Continental Indoor Football League, one in the Ultimate Indoor Football League, and then closed up shop. Three years, three championships, and I think maybe two to three losses, including one perfect season, which I think was the first. And what would happen is the fourth year, the year they shut her up and never to play again, they joined the CIFL again. This would be the first year that I was joining the Dayton Sharks. And the Sharks were replacing the Dayton Silverbacks at Harrow Arena. It would have been a Sunday battle. And that would have been really cool. But it didn't happen like that. So what would happen if the Cincinnati Gardens was still open? You still have your high school teams playing there, I'm sure. The junior hockey team. They only have one year in the Gardens before... Things closed up shop. So we mentioned about the Cincinnati Gardens closing. There's actually one to kind of tie around to that. From Cinemarie, what would happen if Hera never closed? Will we still have the Dayton demolition? Will we still have Axe come into Hera? I will say one thing. The, I forget which home game it was. It was one of the earlier ones. Out front where people buy their tickets and walk in for the game, which is otherwise known as a lobby. See, I can patronize myself. It's funny. Please laugh. They had this poster of a renovated Hera. It looked fantastic, especially if you like the color red. They had a lot of red, lost stars going on. Never came to be. I think it was maybe two games after the poster was gone. There was news... Throughout the time that Hera was letting a couple members of staff go. So what would happen if Hera never closed? It still remains closed. And I'll be honest, I haven't really seen much 
in the news of updates. But if you like history, you like seeing old concert pictures, I recommend liking a page Remembering Hera Arena. Go give them a thumbs up. Enjoy the pictures. It will bring you back for a nostalgic time. This is from Jackie Lovins, and this is for the Dayton Bombers a couple years before they waved goodbye to the hockey family. So Dayton was in the Kelly Cup in 2007, and it was against the Idaho Steelheads. It's a fish. Made with steel. No, that's that sounds disgusting, but it's a fish. I promise you. Idaho versus Dayton, 2007 Kelly Cup, and Dayton was coming off a come-from-behind semifinal win. What would happen if Dayton won the Kelly Cup? Would they still be around? Would they be around one more year? I'm trying to remember if that was the last year of the Columbus affiliation. I don't quite remember. I know Columbus and Dayton were affiliates. Blue Jackets and the Bombers were affiliates for a long time. In fact, the Bombers wore the same font as the Columbus Blue Jackets did on the numbers. And then they had a logo change. Logo change is quite nice, actually. It's very similar to the Dayton Stealth logo of today. I still think the old logo, the Dayton Bombers, like, badge logo, that sticks with me more. Again, wasn't a sports fan as a kid, but whenever we go to Bellbrook to eat that McDonald's, there was a van that always had the Bombers sticker on it, and that's the thing that I remember the most. Why is it? I don't know. Don't ask questions like that. What if Dayton won the 2007 Kelly Cup? Mentioned about Cincinnati Gardens closing. This is about the Cincinnati Stingers. Members of the WHA, the same league that wanted to build a downtown rink in Dayton, Ohio, downtown. This is from my co-worker for the Cincinnati Thunder and the main play-by-play voice, Don Helbig. What would happen if Cincinnati had that one vote to merge into the NHL? That's a very good question. Cincinnati, very, very close to being an NHL home. It was supposed to happen in the summer of 1977. Merger failed by one vote. Where would the Stingers play if they were NHL approved? Will they eventually go to U.S. Bank Arena, current home of the ECHL Cyclones? And a building I swear hasn't changed since the opening credits of WKRP in Cincinnati, even though they did get a renovation in 1997. Stingers were almost in the NHL. I don't think they would have been the first. There was the Cleveland Barons, formerly the California-slash-Oakland Golden Seals. The green and gold look was very, very sharp, by the way. What would happen to the Singers? Stingers made it into the NHL. And now we jump out of hockey. And this one is a little bit different. This is from Pat Mormon. And he wants to be at the largest sports crowd in Dayton history, according to Tom Archdeacon, again, of the Dayton Daily News. In the late 1800s, 75,000 people at Montgomery County Fairgrounds came out for a horse race. There's a sketch of this by Courier and Ives. Yes, the same people from that Christmas song. Well, okay, they're not from the Christmas song, but you get what I'm saying. 
The sketch is hanging at Old Hickory and Brown Street by the University of Dayton. So, anyone in town, go check that out. Just imagine, though, back in the day, you gotta think. Times are different, so, you know, your apparel is a lot different. Back then, you used to go to sporting events in suit and ties and hats. And again, sporting events were, what, a nickel? A dime? <laughs> Give me those prices today, am I right? That'd be great. No, but uh, Bat Mormon had a different look on that, and I definitely respect him that. Just imagine being one of 75,000 watch a horse race. Unfortunately, this is the last year of the Montgomery County Fairgrounds. The fairgrounds are moving to Jefferson Township off of Dayton Liberty Road in the upcoming year. Right now it's fair season, as I record this July 25th, 2017. But just think, being part of that crowd to watch the horse race. Maybe Jem was racing there. Of course, Jem being a horse, a racehorse, and apparently was the source of why Dayton was a Gem City. Again, I don't think that's true. I don't know. You might have to tell me on that. So the next event, Glenn Olson, who is a sportscaster in Cincinnati, had the same ideas I mentioned in the Marcus Hartman article uh, some while back. Glenn Olson writes, I don't know if you consider this local. It is. But the Bengals beating the 49ers in Miami. Again, going back to the Super Bowl losses for Cincinnati. You gotta argue the 80s, probably the most successful time for Cincinnati with the two visits to the Super Bowl and, of course, the Super Bowl in 89. Well, for the 88 season. I always hate trying to say that, but whatever. Having the game in your hands and then Joe Montana driving the other way, winning for San Fran. If Cincinnati won at least one, if not both, of the Super Bowls, would they have the whole 90s forget about it era? Not counting 1990, because that is currently the last playoff win for Cincinnati against the now-defunct, now-also the Tennessee Titans, Houston Oilers squad. I think that was 45-3, to was it, for Cincinnati? And that's the last Bengals playoff win. And then 1991 on through close to 2003. It's an era you like to wipe away from your memory. Or as I tell my closest friends, because they'll probably get it, the Forest Fair era, which is, you know, empty. You forgot about it, and it's still empty. What would happen if Cincinnati won one of, or both, of those Super Bowls? Who knows? Will we have the... Marvin Lewis era. Will we have that streak of getting to the playoffs and then losing the first game, including that one game I was watching, and then they lost it at the last drive because of stupid penalties against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Last year was rough, too, but I feel like this season's going to be better for the Bengals. Get off topic for a second. If you saw the predictions from USA Today saying the Bengals are going 5-11, I'm not seeing that. I'll say 8-8 at worst. But there you go. Bengals prediction inside the episode talking about what events would you change. I'm going to skip this next one because it is such a topic that stirs up many of Hornet's Nest that I'm going to try to say that to the end. So the next one is Brian Markowski, who went to school with me, also worked with me at WWSU. 
He mentions the Wright State's NCAA game against the Pitt Panthers in 2007. That was the year that the whole Kent Caboodle was won at the Nutter Center. I watched that at ESPN, and I wish I went to the game instead. Wright State ended up losing to the Pitt Panthers. And I'm also going to throw my hat into the ring because I have it written down somewhere. Not on this page, but the previous page. The 1993 NCAA game. The first time Wright State would win the Midcon Conference title. Under the guidance of Ralph Underhill, assistant coach Jim Brown. And they were taking on Bobby Knight's Indiana Hoosiers. What would happen if Wright State won either of those games? Of course, the Hoosiers at that time, you know, terrific club. Especially in 93. That score was 97-54, to 54, Indiana defeating Wright State, according to sports-reference.com. I like on here how it doesn't have the old Wright State logo on it. Because back then it was a Viking. I think I actually have that on here, but that's... This is from March 19th, 1993. So when Bill Edwards was on the team. One of the most successful Raiders in basketball history. Ended up scoring 18 points to lead the team with Mark Woods' 14 points. And Mike Nahar's 9. That helped lead the Raiders' effort against the Hoosiers. Wright State ended up finishing 19-10. and 10. Indiana 29 and three. Lean score for the Hoosiers. Scored 29. Calbert Chinney. Also shot 70.6% through that game. Four through six from the line. Brian Reese mentioned to me on Twitter. What would happen if the Dayton Flyers men's basketball team took down Florida in the 2014 Elite Eight? Which would send the Flyers to the Final Four. Of course, that year... <laughs> that year was the University of Dayton from the Dayton Daily News headline which I treasure of all my heart as you know Dayton, Cincinnati before Columbus is what I say that headline was just great the picture was great and my doctor's office actually has it hanging up in the waiting room every time I see it I just I crack a smile what can I say what would happen if the Flyers' roll continued past the Gators? Our next suggestions from Andy Armstrong. We called a couple games together in the 2011 Horizon League baseball tournament up at Wright State. What if Ken Griffey Jr. doesn't get hurt playing for the Reds and becomes the all-time home run champion of baseball? Man, Ken Griffey Jr. That is the first jersey I ever bought. It's a road kit from before what they have now. I like that font a lot better than the current font. I, you know, just my taste. But Ken Griffey Jr., could you imagine what Cincinnati would be like if his career wasn't entangled with injuries? The Cincinnati kid, his dad playing along with the Reds, that would have been something awesome to see. Of course, playing in Seattle, he, he was dynamite. 
He was also in the movie Little Big League. Spoilers here. Griffey Jr. records the final out to thwart the Minnesota Twins' comeback in, I believe it was the ALCS. If I remember the movie right. These have all been good ones. Here's one that's current from Lucas Moore. He is a sportscaster. Madam had one of the high school baseball games at Fifth Third Field. And he covered Springfield Shawnee Braves baseball. All he wants is to Jeremy Hill to hold on to the football. I think we're talking about the Cincinnati versus Pittsburgh game where Bengals had it in their grasp, but those two penalties come back and bite him in the butt. And Lucas Moore is even saying, forget the Super Bowls, just wanted to see that happen. That was a crushing moment. I was watching on Twitter and just seeing all the Bengals fans happy and then <laughs> social media wave just happens and then Bengals fans are like, no! And we have one from Matt Zinniger, keeping it with the Bengals. And this is a Bengals-Pittsburgh playoff game from the 05-06 season. What if Carson Palmer doesn't get his knee blown out in the second play of the game for Cincinnati? What if Carson Palmer stayed in the game, didn't get hurt? Would Cincinnati win that game? I have to think they have a solid shot on it. Turned out John Kitna had to drive the ship the rest of the way for the Bengals, and Pittsburgh won by at least 14 points, I think. I feel like Cincinnati could have won that. That's not me with my orange and black glasses on my head. I feel like they would have had a solid shot, especially that year that they had, but we'll never know. Actually, I have one more before we'll store up the hornet's nest. And this is from me. This is one of the last ones I thought of. What would happen if the Dragons won that playoff series in 2011 against the Lansing Lugnuts? Just to preview that, Dayton got the playoff berth in the second half, and that team was dynamite. This is the year Billy Hamilton ends up stealing over 100 stolen bases, and that happens to be the minor league record. Of course, now Billy Hamilton with the Cincinnati Reds. Dayton won the home game. Lansing being the first half winner, they got you know two home games. They had the home field advantage. Lansing won the second game quite handily. And the third game, Dayton had the lead. I think it was a one nothing lead. And the bottom of the ninth, Lansing scores two to win it. If Lansing doesn't score those two to win it, what would happen to the Dragons? Would fans remember that as the best Dragons team ever? And now we come to the final event of this wild, wild ride. I've been trying to figure out how to word it in a way where I'm not going to shake up a lot of hornets talking about it. But this has been suggested from Ron Boggs, a good friend of mine, we work together, and CJ Dorn, who I went to school with. And if you are a local Dayton fan, you already know this. If you're a local Cincinnati fan, you have your own series with this in the Bearcats and Xavier. I'm talking about the Gem City Slam. This is men's basketball, Wright State versus Dayton. The last time these two teams played on the hard court for men's basketball was December of 1997. Back then I was nine, and not into sports as yet. Ed Schilling was the head coach of the Raiders. This would have been his first year at Wright State, and Oliver Pinnell was over at UD. 
Dayton ended up winning that game, and the series has held five wins for the Flyers, three wins for the Raiders. What if this series didn't stop late 1997? What if it continued to play on throughout the years? Now, Dayton basketball, very, very strong history. In Wright State, they started playing Division One in the 87-88 year, so one more year than I've been alive. So not as much D1 history for Wright State. However, Wright State has the Division II National Championship under the belt. Again, this is Ralph Underhill and assistant coach Jim Brown leading the charge with the Raiders' win against the District of Columbia back in 1983. This is before the Nutter Center, when the gym was still in what's now known as the Student Union, in the bookstore. When you go past the cashiers, look up at the ceiling, that's that's the gym. Well, that used to be the gym, that's not the gym anymore. Nutter Center is. So, what if the series continued after 97? I'm not going to guess what the series would be. What I am going to say is, would it be popular like what Cincinnati and Xavier enjoy? Where it was in danger of just being played. Actually, it was in danger of not being played at all. But then they played a year or two at U.S. Bank Arena and said, Nah, we'll just do home and home again. And Xavier and Cincinnati fans rejoiced. Now, of course, in Dayton, there's no real neutral rink. I mean, sure, you have a basketball gym that seats 5,000 and Kettering, but when you have the history of the University of Dayton Arena, which is now getting a major facelift, and inside the facelift, you know, we call that remodeling in the trade. I'm not sure why I said inside the face. No one's ever said that. And Wright State's Nutter Center, having the seeing capacity it has, you know, there's no neutral court. Would there be a television deal? Would there be a sponsorship deal? I can see a couple things going, you know, sponsorship deal for that, but I absolutely believe it would have been great for the community. Yeah, it's your pride of Dayton. I'm not going to go into the whole thing of, you know, it needs to be played, it doesn't need to be played. Both these schools have good basketball programs. Anthony Grant, the University of Dayton, you know, you got a Flyer alum leading the pack now and also has NBA experience as an assistant coach with the Oklahoma City Thunder and for Wright State, Scott Nagy, his second year, brought a really up-tempo pace along with him. Wright State scored a bunch, a bunch of points. Had a 20-win season last year, Wright State did. I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to say this game needs to be played. You can make your own opinions of that. I'm just asking... What if the series was still playing? And that will do it for my sports almanac. This is where Biff gets angry and then tries to shoot me. Then I throw a match plate at him and then he misses. Another Back to the Future 2 reference. Again, go watch the movie. But not now. You're listening to my podcast. That's all the ideas that I got sent in, and that's all the ideas I thought of as well. I hope I gave everyone credit, and hopefully it was an enjoyable second episode to listen to on the gem on the Queen's Crown. Again, original idea from Twitter user Dunlap Sports, 
and localized by Marcus Hartman's article in the Dayton Daily News. I thank you for listening to The Gem on the Queen's Crown. Episode 3 is scheduled to be a talk about what's happening in the summer for Cincinnati and Dayton sports. And soon enough, we will have some guests to talk sports about, so it's not just me you have to listen to throughout a whole episode. I got a couple in mind, and hopefully we'll get the ball rolling. That concludes Episode 2 of The Gem on the Queen's Crown. This is Lee W. Mowen. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook, at the Lee W. Mowen, also Instagram, too. Don't forget you can listen to my podcast on iTunes and Google Play, and also at the home of The Gem of the Queen's Crown, GemCitySports.com, GCSN. That wraps things up here from my studio. Goodbye, everyone, and we'll talk to you for episode number three. Music provided by freestockmusic.com Hosting by gemcitysports.com